I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We are going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, and chapter 11 is an impossible task. I say that because, um, um, well, let's see, how many verses are there in the 11th chapter? Uh, 40 verses in chapter 11. Just about each verse is talking about somebody, and there's a story behind the somebody that it's talking about. So you could take one week just about per verse. And uh, we certainly don't want to do that. But uh, the, the difficulty that we have is the Jews understand some things about the people that are being referred to that a lot of times we, without an Old Testament background, don't know. And so there will be certain things that we'll say, and, and, um, and, and it's going to take us a little while, a couple of weeks at least, to a uh, couple, couple more weeks to get through the 11th chapter. But we're going to do our best, and we'll just try to let the Holy Ghost lead us how He wants us to go. Um, chapter 11 is a, uh, an experience. Uh, is the expounding upon verse 38 in chapter 10. Paul is uh, identified in the, um, uh, the 10th chapter. He's trying to encourage the, the Jews, the Christians in Jerusalem, to, uh, to not give up, to, uh, to go back to what it was like when they first started. And with the book of Acts tells us what a great uh, start the church had there in Jerusalem. He's trying to encourage them that even though things were tough and even though they, they ran into um, to difficulties and persecution, they still held, held fast and held themselves steady. And so he's encouraged them, trying to encourage them to, to go back to that same thing. They've turned loose of a lot of the things they started with. And so he says in verse 38 of Hebrews 10, Now the just shall live by faith. Now that's an Old Testament quote. Uh, that's a, a quote from the, the Law of Moses. It's Habakkuk. Actually, it's one of the prophets that spoke this. And uh, it's used several times. Paul uses it several times in his writings. And so he says, now the just shall live by faith. Chapter 11 is all about the just living by faith. Now, it's important for us to, to uh, repeat a couple of things that we said last week so that you understand um, um, what he's trying to convey and why. One thing that, uh, uh, that some people have a difficulty with on the subject of faith uh, related not only to uh, what Paul says here in chapter 11, but in some other places. Paul said in Romans chapter uh, 4 that Abraham was justified by faith. James says in chapter 2 in the letter that he wrote that Abraham was justified not just by faith, but by works. And so for some people, that's a real conflict. That's a real, um, well, what? It's a, it's something that they can't rectify, something they can't justify. How can it be so? How can the Holy Ghost say, impress Paul to say that it was by faith and faith alone, how could he impress upon James to say that it was faith plus works? And so a lot of people don't understand the difference between the, the things that are being spoken of. Um, there's, uh, there's two faiths that are spoken of uh, or talked about in the New Testament, and I'll refer you back to Romans chapter 1. We looked at this before, but Romans chapter 1, Paul gives us the answer. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the word of God, is the power of God unto salvation. Now, the word salvation means uh, to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. So he's not talking about forgiveness of sins. He's talking about the whole package of salvation. He's talking about all that Jesus died for us to have. So he says the word of God is the power of God into everything Jesus purchased through his blood and his sacrifice. And he goes further. He says it belongs to everyone that believes. Not only to the Jew, they got it first. They got the message first, but also to the Greeks or the Gentiles. Verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Faith in his word is what causes the righteousness of God to be revealed. But what faith is he talking about? Is he saying faith in God's word is what causes somebody to get saved? Well, that's certainly true. That's the only way you can be saved. That's why there is no 
Um, there is no other religion on the face of the earth that can bring you in, in connection with God if the Bible's true. And if the Bible's not true, then, then who knows how to get there? Everybody seems to have their own, other religions seem to have their own idea. But either the Bible is true or it's not. So he says, therein, by faith, is the righteousness of God revealed. But notice how it's revealed. It's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, here's Paul using the same phrase again that he uses in Hebrews, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, isn't that what he said over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38? Didn't he quote that same thing, the just shall live by faith? But notice he says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What in the world does that mean? Is he saying the righteousness of God is revealed as you grow in faith? Well, that's not always true, folks. Because some people are growing in faith in one area, but not growing in faith in another area. So what is he talking about? He's saying, when he says from faith to faith, he's saying there's two applications to faith. First is saving faith. Saving faith causes you to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But the second application to faith is faith that you live by. There's saving faith, saving faith, and living faith. With that in mind, that's why James gets so in the face of the people that he's writing the letters to. The, the Jewish Christians that have been scattered abroad, James gets so in their face. James is writing to people that we would call casual Christians today. People that are born again, people that are saved, but that's as far as they ever go. And James is saying, it's not good enough just to be saved. Do something with your faith. He's saying it's not good enough to just use salvation Jesus, being the Lord of your life, is fire insurance to escape the fires of hell. He says, do something with your life. So what does he say? He says, faith without works is dead. What does that mean? It means faith without a lifestyle that is based on something built on the word won't produce anything worthwhile. And that's why he even calls them sinners. In James chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, draw nigh unto God, and he'll draw nigh unto you, you sinners. Well, who's he writing to? Is he writing to the unsaved? No. He said he's writing to the Christians. Well, why is he calling them sinners? Because they've been saved by faith, but they're not living by faith. Now, I guess if James was a a modern-day grace preacher, he would have said, now just confess that you're saved and everything will be all right. But he didn't. He was inspired by the Holy Ghost to get in their face and tell them you're sinners because you're not using the the faith that you're saved by to become a lifestyle. That's why the Bible says again and again, the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall be saved by faith. And that's what, that's what, uh, what's his name? Paul is talking about in Hebrews chapter 11. So turn back with me to Hebrews 11 again. He starts off in the first three verses of the chapter giving us a, a general overview of faith. He says, now faith, living faith, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith has to be based on something that you see inside rather than something you see outside. That's the theme of everything else he talks about in the the 11th chapter. Everything he's going to talk about are people that saw something, not with the natural eye, but from within. In many cases, they saw it because God revealed it to them. Other times, they just saw it because it was a promise that had been given. So he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, living faith, the elders obtained a good report. Now, this good report is literally divine approval. That's what these words mean. For by it, the elders, the Old Testament saints, obtained divine approval. Now, folks, what is the only thing that approves us before God? Paul wrote to Timothy and said, study to show yourself approved unto God. Study what? Study the word. It's only by living 
based on the word. And you can't live by the word unless you have knowledge of the word. It's only by living by the word that you gain approval of God. Now, wait a minute. I thought that he approved of all of us. I thought that we're accepted in the beloved. Yeah, to be saved. But from that point, if you want to go beyond being accepted in the beloved to being approved of God or have divine approval, you're going to have to do something with the salvation you receive through Jesus and live it in your life. I know that's not a popular message, but the Holy Ghost seemed to think it was important. So he says, for by it, living faith, living your faith, the elders obtain divine approval. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, we've said this before, but I need to say this again, because this is such an important issue, folks. And it's something that we don't normally think about. And unless we take this apart and really uh, get to what Paul is trying to say by the Holy Ghost, you're going to miss something really good. This word, worlds, does not mean planets. Although we understand that the planets, the universe was created by things that we can't see. Universe was created by words, right? God looked into the nothingness and said, light be, let there be the firmament and all this kind of stuff. Sun, moon, stars, etc. So everything we can see was the result of something that we couldn't see and that was God speaking words. Right? But that's not what this is saying. It's a true principle, but that's not what this is saying. It's saying the world order. By it, through faith, we understand that the world order. Now, he's talking about ages. He's talking about dispensations. He's talking about time. He's talking about everything that we understand as natural history, human earthly history. He's saying history is created not by people that are doing things, passing laws and so forth. He says history is created by the unseen things. Now, we look at our world today and we think President Obama is making history. Well, he made history with Obamacare. He's making history with the gun thing and the the immigration reform and all this kind of stuff that's change. I don't know if there's any hope attached to it, but there's change. Right? We look at the Congress. We look at at the Obama. We look at at all the things that are happening, the, the judicial system, and we think, wow, they're making history. And we may not like the history they're making, but the Bible says that God's history, the history of that which is eternal, is made by people who are living according to unseen things described in the Word. Living by faith makes history. Not earthly history, but eternal history. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that the things that are seen are not made of things which do appear. We looked over in Revelation chapter 20 where it talks about at the end, both those great and small will stand before the Lord and the books are open, books plural. And then it mentions the book of life. Now, most of the time people just read that through real quickly and say, well, okay, there's a book of life that everybody's going to be judged by. That's not what it says. It says God has books. He has books. Why does he have books? Because he keeps record of those who live by faith. And so he's going to give us examples of people that made history. He said Abel made history by making an excellent sacrifice. Now, you know what's interesting? It's, um, and, and unless you know the Hebrew language, you're not going to get this. So uh, indulge me a little bit to, to take some time and, and give you a couple of details. It may not change your life, but it may bring you some greater understanding. In Genesis chapter 3, after uh, Adam and Eve fell... God appears to Adam and Eve and talks to him and says, what have you done? And he pronounces certain things. He pronounces the curses upon the earth. He pronounces the curse upon the woman. He pronounces the, or the curse that will come upon the woman because now Satan is the God of this world. And then he pronounces a curse upon Satan. He says to Satan that the seed of the woman will bruise your head, but you'll bruise her. 
you'll bruise, how does it say, the seed of the woman will be, her, the heel will be bruised by Satan, but he will crush your head. Literally, the word crush or destroy uh, is used. Well, you can readily see it's uncomfortable to have a heel bruised, but it's really, really a different situation when something crushes your head. From that point forward, Satan's tried to destroy the seed of the woman. It's The Bible tells us about that all the way from Genesis through Revelation. Now, the next thing that happens is God makes animal skins for clothes for Adam and Eve. Now, how did he do that? What happened there? He create, He makes a sacrifice. He shows them this sacrifice is going to be necessary to cover your sin. Now, what did he do? Remember, he's talking to Adam in the, in the cool of the day, walking with him through the Garden of Eden. What would that be like? It would be real easy for us just without thought to assume that God now all of a sudden doesn't like Adam and Eve anymore because they mess things up. And so God creates animal skins. He makes a sacrifice and creates animal skins and says, okay, from now on, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to take an animal. You're going to have to slit the throat. You're going to have to offer the blood as a sacrifice. You're going to have to use this blood in some way to um, whatever God dictated, however he, and we don't know. We don't know exactly what was required of them other than a blood sacrifice. We know that takes place because in chapter 4, the very next chapter, just several verses later, Abel and Cain and Abel are offering sacrifice. Well, how did they learn? Had to learn from Adam and Eve. How did Adam and Eve learn? They had to learn from God. The only thing that we have record of that might fit that is when God made them animal skins for clothes. So God tells them something about this. Well, how would God explain this? What would God say to Adam and Eve to explain to them the necessity of of the, the sacrifice? Do you think it's possible, since he shared everything with Adam about the whole of creation, do you think it's possible that maybe he said, now there will come a one that will make a sacrifice for all of mankind. There is one coming that will make a sacrifice for you and those children that come after you. Just everything will be taken care of by the sacrifice of one that's to come. You think it's possible? That seems to be the case because of what Adam and Eve named their children. In chapter four of uh, 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 chapter four, verse one of Genesis, it says that the next thing that happens, and we don't know what kind of time period was involved, but the next thing that happens is that it says that Adam knew Eve, and Eve conceived, and Cain was born, and she said, "I have gotten me a man." Why in the world would you say that? Is that what you mother said the first time that they brought your brand new baby to you? I have gotten me a man. That doesn't make sense. And no way, no, no matter how you translate it, it always comes out the same way. I have gotten me a man. So she names him Cain, which means a lance or a spear. Now, unless that's per, that is relative to the childbirth experience she's just had, then the only explanation for that is the, the, the concept of a piercing or the shedding of blood. It's most likely that Eve and Adam as well well, thought that their firstborn child would be this child of sacrifice or to make the sacrifice that God probably told them about when he showed them how to make sacrifice. The reason that we think that, or at least the reason I think that, is that the next son that comes along is named Abel. Abel means disillusionment. So whatever Cain was expected to be by the time Abel comes along, it's kind of like, oh, well. So Cain and Abel began to make sacrifice. 
They had to learn from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the only ones that knew it. They were the only ones on the face of the earth when God showed them how to do it. So they make a sacrifice. Abel is a, a rancher. Cain is a farmer. A lot of times people think that Cain just brought whatever he had because, uh, you know, that he's a farmer, so he brought vegetables, onions, and leeks, and whatever. But Cain was a, was a rancher, and so he brought animals. That's what he dealt with. And God liked uh, Abel better than he liked Cain because of the animal. And, folks, that has nothing to do with anything. What it has to do with is this. And it may have everything to do with Cain being raised to think that he was a sacrifice. It may have had everything to do with Cain's idea or understanding, or at least the possibility thereof, that there was a sacrifice that was going to come that would put us back in the Garden of Eden and and get rid of Satan and put us back in authority and, and fix this whole thing that we messed up that didn't come to pass through him. Because when the time comes for the sacrifice to be made, Abel does it the way God says, Cain has no respect for sacrifice, period. What does that mean? That means Cain, or that it means Abel recognized that he needed salvation. Cain, eh, who cares? So what did Cain do? Cain did the religious thing. He brought whatever he wanted to. Abel, on the other hand, brought what God said bring. The Bible tells us in, uh, um, well, in the New Testament, it tells us about how that, uh, that Cain offered a sacrifice. First John chapter 3, I believe it is, about verse, uh, well, I don't know what verse it is, probably about verse 12. I think it is, verse 12. First John chapter 3, verse 12. It tells us about Cain. It says, Cain slew his brother, and wherefore did he slay him, or wherefore was it that he slew him? Those two words, slew, mean two different things. The first word that's used there, it says, Cain slew his brother. It literally means he killed him with the sacrificial knife. The second word, slew, wherefore did he, wherefore he did slew, however it says, I don't know. Somebody look it up and tell me how it says. Anyway, both words are slew in the King James. The second word means to cut the jugular. In other words, Cain said, okay, God doesn't like my sacrifice. I'll show him, I'll use Abel as the sacrifice. Why would he do that? Why would he even think in those terms? Unless the idea had been planted with him that he was supposed to be the sacrifice to fix it all. So what does he do? He turns around and makes Abel the sacrifice. Now, folks, why in the world would Abel have a different attitude? They grew up in the same home, heard the same thing from the same parents. Why would Abel have a different attitude toward the sacrifice than Cain does? Because of something he saw. Cain and Abel saw two different things. Abel makes a sacrifice according to what God dictated or demanded because he saw the need for salvation not Cain he didn't need anything can I ask you a question you think Abel came to this sacrifice thinking I'm going to make history I can see my brother's gathering vegetables he's gathering turnips he's going to offer those turnips there's no blood in a turnip That's not going to work with God. So I'm going to be making history. Of course not. He just did what was right, and it became a history-making event. It made him a hero. Did it look like it made him a hero when it happened? Nope. Looked like just an ordinary activity. He may be looking at this like, I don't know what your problem is, Cain. We just did what we're supposed to do. Why are you upset with me? I just did what mom and dad told us we had to do. 
the ordinary events. Here's what I'm trying to get across. The ordinary events, when you live by the word, make eternal history. Next one it talks about is Enoch. It says in verse 5, um, well, I guess we should read verse 4. By faith, Abel offered uh, unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness. This word witness is the word approval. This translated good report in verse 2. By it, he obtained approval that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. In other words, your works speak for you after you're gone. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated. The word translated means to transport or to change sides. Beam me up, Jesus. Enoch is a type of the church. His translation is a type of the rapture. That's interesting about Enoch because it says, by, Enoch, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. You know, here's what's interesting about that. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, uh, verse 20 through 24, somewhere around there, it says, talking about Enoch, and it really doesn't give us much information. It says he lived 65 years and then begat Methuselah. Everybody's heard of Methuselah. He's the guy that lived the longest on the earth. He lived 969 years on the earth, longer than anybody else we have record of in the Bible. But the way that the Bible says it in Genesis, the wording, the, the, the language itself indicates that he did not walk with God until Methuselah was born. Now, what in the world about Methuselah's birth would make him walk with God? Well, his name tells us. The name Methuselah means when he dies, an end will come. You count the years from Methuselah's birth to the flood. Guess how many years that is? 969 years. So what happened? Enoch saw something from God. He had something revealed to him from God about the end. Well, he saw the end regarding the flood. That was the end of the age. Not the end of the world system, just the end of the age. He's going to tell us about that in Noah in the next one he's talking about. But I want you to see something else. Turn with me over to Jude. Just a couple of pages over, just right before Revelation. One chapter of the book of Jude. Notice what it says about Enoch when Jude is talking about the end. Here it says in Jude verse 14. It said, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. He's talking about end times. He's talking about the condition of people and so forth. He said, Enoch prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. There's a lot of ungodlies in there. And of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What this is telling us is very simply this. God revealed to Enoch something when he was 65 years old, just before the birth of, or shortly before the birth of Methuselah. He showed him two things. He showed him the flood, where the world was going to be destroyed by water. And then he showed him the end, the second advent of Jesus, when Jesus comes back with tens of thousands of his saints, that's you and me, and destroys the earth by fire. Enoch was the seer of the end. Now, he didn't live long enough naturally to see either one of them. 
but he saw something. And what he saw caused him to walk with God to such a degree that as Genesis chapter 5, verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Can I ask you a question? Which day did Enoch think he was making history? What does it mean to walk with God other than to walk with God like you and I walk with God? Which day did he wake up saying, okay, this is the day I'm going to get written up for? Folks, it was just his normal daily activity that caused him to make history. That's what I want you to get. It's not the big events, the big battles, the big, the big things that are scheduled or that, that you come upon that you think, okay, here it is. No, it's the day-to-day walking with God. It's the day-to-day action of living by faith in God's Word. That's what's filling the books that God's keeping records of. So then he goes further into verse 6 and he says, but without faith it's impossible to please him. That means without faith it's impossible to gain divine approval. Now you're accepted in the beloved because you're saved. But it's a life of faith that earns divine approval. Because a life of faith is a life based on the word and the word is the only thing that you can show yourself approved unto God. So without faith it's impossible to please him for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Please notice the word seek. You're going to see that several times throughout this chapter. Them that diligently seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Another translation says things never seen before. Noah saw something that had never been seen before. He saw something inside based on what God had told him that had never been seen before. Well, what was that? It was one or of two things or maybe two, both of these things. Number one, certainly it's the flood. The world had never seen a flood before. But it could also be rain. Because the, the only thing the Bible tells us about watering the earth prior to that point in time was that there was a mist that came up from the ground. It tells us there was a firmament in the heavens and that firmament is described as a cloud cover. So it's very possible. We don't know for sure, but it's very possible that there was a cloud cover, a constant cloud cover over the earth so that the only water that there was came up from the ground. But the Bible says that at the time of the flood, the heavens opened, rain came down in a deluge and the the fountains of the deep were broken up from the earth too. So it's water coming from above and water coming from beneath. And it covered the earth in a short period of time. And destroyed everybody. Now the Bible says about Noah that he was 500 years old when, he, when God told him about the flood. And he was 600 years old when the water started coming down. So he's building. It implies, it doesn't say it's right, uh, straight out, but it implies that he built the ark for 100 years. He's building this thing for 100 years. Now let me ask you a question. If somebody started building an ark in your neighborhood, would you be interested? Somewhere in that hundred years, you're going to say, Noah, what are you doing? What's he going to tell him? He's going to tell him what God showed him. Because he's not trying to keep anybody else out. He's trying to let people know that this is the only way you're going to be able to escape this thing that's never been seen before. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The Bible says that when the flood came and his family were, were shut up in the ark, when God shut them in, closed the door, it says there were eight people that were saved in the ark. How many did they start with? Eight. He preached for a hundred years with zero converts. 
People bless their heart. They say, oh, it's so hard to live today. It's harder than ever before. Seriously? Try Noah's day. Now, folks, you need to understand something. A lot of times people try to judge Old Testament things, things of different dispensations, by what Jesus said about our day. Jesus said the thief comes but for to kill, steal, and to destroy. So everybody looks at the Old Testament, or people, some people at least, look at the Old Testament and say, everything that kills, steals, and destroys that ever happened in the Bible, the devil did that. Can I ask a question? If the devil is controlling the whole earth except for eight people, why does he want to kill them? Eight people on the face of the earth were considered to be candidates for righteousness. Eight people. Everybody else has been given over to to sin. Folks, God brought the flood. Here's the difference. When God destroys things, sinners perish. When the devil destroys things, he tries tries to destroy Christians. Now, here's where the change occurs. In our day, the church age, the devil kills, steals, and destroys, and he's the only one God does it. Because when God was destroying the earth through the flood, he was sparing man by passing judgment on sin. That's what the Bible means in Romans chapter 8 where it says Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh. The reason that man is not under judgment today in the church age is because Jesus separated the sin from man by taking it upon himself. He passed judgment, God passed judgment on sin apart from, separate from man. That's why there is nothing. There's no sickness. There's no tragedy. There's no uh, evil that will befall man that God has anything to do with. Why? Because of the age, the dispensation, the time that we live in. But as soon as the church is plucked out of here in the rapture, that's when the judgment of God comes down. And at the end, God will destroy the earth by fire. There are a lot of people that will be killed by the judgment of God. Now, folks, I'm saying this because I want you to understand something. Grace has always been accessible to mankind through one and only one thing, and that's faith. But the idea that grace means nothing will ever happen that's bad is hogwash. There's a lot of people that are going to be destroyed by the the wrath of God. That's why we need to get the job done before we get out of here. That's why we need to get as many people aware of what's coming so that they can be spared. That's the work of the church. Because in the time period from the time of Jesus' resurrection, uh, well, actually from the time that Jesus came upon the earth to the time of the church being raptured, there is no evil that will take hold of man that God has anything to do with. That's the point in time, the period of time that the devil and only the devil is killing, stealing, and destroying. But there are other time periods that God had a lot to do with destroying the, the enemies of Israel, for example, under the law. He destroyed Israel's enemies. How do you reconcile that with the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy? You can't because they were different time periods. They were different dispensations. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things never before seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. His action... Certainly his action was based on the fact that he believed what God showed him. But his action is what made him the heir of righteousness. Now, folks, you remember over in First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 3? It said, well, turn with me over there. Hold your finger here. We're coming back. But I want you to see this. It's so important that we understand the difference. 
Because so many people are just looking at the Bible as a hodgepodge of things and they don't really know how to, to rightly divide it. First Peter chapter one, I'm sorry, second Peter chapter one, verse three. Did I tell you first Peter first? I'm sorry, I'll get there. Second Peter chapter one, verse three, it says, according, um, well, back up to verse two, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of, of God and of Jesus, our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Well, you can clearly see he's talking to people that are saved. According as his divine power has given unto us. Well, he hadn't given unto the world all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given that to those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. Right? Notice what he says to those of us who have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Verse 4. Whereby... Because we're saved, in other words, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped, past tense, having escaped, you've already escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. How'd you escape the corruption that's in the world through lust? You got saved. So now that you're saved, you have been given exceeding great and precious promises, that by these promises you might be a partaker, meaning you're not yet a partaker just because you're saved. You're not yet a partaker of the divine nature. How are we going to become partakers of the divine nature? By living according to the Word. Living according to the Word will cause us to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. It'll cause our mind to be renewed to the Word. It'll cause us to live out the things that Jesus paid for. You know as well as I do, there's a big difference between somebody that's saved and somebody that's walking into all the benefits of salvation. Peter is saying it's not enough just to get saved. You need to walk in the Word so that you can become a divine, a partaker of the divine nature. Paul said this to the Romans, Romans chapter 12. He said, present your body a living sacrifice. Well, I thought we were already saved. Yeah, that's why you have to present your body a living sacrifice. You mean God didn't do that when we got saved? obviously not. And then he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to do something with your mind. What do we do? We renew it to the word of God so that we can be partakers of the divine nature. Do you see the difference? He's talking about the difference between saving faith and living faith. Every God, every writer in the New Testament talks about the difference between saving faith and living faith. We just talk about faith. Which one do we mean? That depends on who we're talking to. If we're talking to the unsaved, we mean saving faith. If we're talking to people that are already saved, we're talking about living faith. And James said very clearly, very specifically, faith, saving faith, without corresponding actions, without a lifestyle behind it, based on what you, the Word says to believe in, is non-productive. It's dead being alone. That's why this is so important. Because he's talking about a lifestyle of faith. Verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should go, which he should, after for an inheritance, obeyed and he went out not knowing whether he went. This is talking first of all about Abraham's call. You remember in Genesis chapter 12, it says God appears to Abraham. First thing he says, now get out of your father's house and go to the land I tell you. And here's what I'll do for you. I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, and I'll make you a blessing. What's the first action that Abraham took right here? He went out not knowing where he was going. 
He went out not knowing what to expect. He went out just because God said, follow me and I'll bring you blessings. Okay, that was good enough for him. And that simple action made history. But now notice the next verse. The next verse is not talking about just the first action when he was called to go. Now it's talking about his lifestyle. By faith, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called out to go into a place, I'm sorry, I went back to the same one. Verse 9, by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Notice how Abraham made made history. He made history first by obeying God when he first told him what to do. He made history secondly by living day by day by day in and according to God's direction. Well, I wonder if you can still make history that way. Why not? What's changed? You've got the same word to live by. This is something that Holy, the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to write as a record of what God remembers. I wonder if he remembers it out of you and me. If not, he's changed. And he's pretty clear about saying he never changes. Why did he do this? Why did he live this kind of lifestyle? Verse 10, for he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's going to be important. You're going to see that concept again. Verse 11, I want you to see this. This is so important. Verse 11, through faith also Sarah herself, the emphasis is on herself. She didn't just ride Abraham's coattails. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Now what in the world enabled her to overcome the deadness of her own womb to receive strength to conceive seed? The last phrase is huge. Verse 11, because she judged him faithful who had promised. You know what I see a lot of people doing? I see a lot of people trying to convince themselves that the promises of God are true. And they're making confessions. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sickness. Whatever it is, my God shall supply all my needs. Whatever promise it is. I see people trying to repeat this thing over and over and over again, trying to persuade themselves, trying to convince themselves that the promises of God are true. Well, okay, that's good. Stick with it long enough and and that'll make a difference. But you know a better way to go? You judge the one that made the promises to be faithful. And the byproduct of that is the promises are automatically true. Too many people are focusing on the promises instead of the one that made the promise. This says she, here's how she made her faith work. She received strength to conceive after her body was past the ability to do so because she judged him to be faithful who promised. How many times are we looking at faith or trying to operate in faith when the object is something rather than the God that promised. Don't ever let faith get ritualistic, folks. Lester Summerall said something years ago uh, that, that always stuck with me. He said this. He said, if my faith isn't working, I don't examine my faith. He said, I examine my relationship with God. Because that's what faith is. Faith is a relationship with God. It's not a set of rules. It's not do this, don't do that. It's not confess enough. I've had people say, how many times do I have to say it before it will happen? 
I don't know. How many times are you going to have to say it before you believe in the one that made the promise? You see the point? Through faith, Sarah received strength to conceive and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him to be faithful who promised. You know, one of the, the, the greatest... Um, well, I'll, I'll just tell you for myself. One of the greatest feelings I've ever had as a Christian. And you know, I don't live by feelings. I make the joke that, you know, emotions are great. I'm glad for those of you that have them. Seriously, emotions mean nothing to me. But boy, when you get one from God, it's really good. The greatest feeling I've ever had as a Christian was when I, my eyes were open to God's faithfulness. I began worshiping God one night just in my bed by myself. Well, Beth was there, but she was asleep. She snored away. So I didn't, I didn't have anything to, to distract me. I just got to worshiping God because of his faithfulness. And I got something came down from heaven over me over that. I, I, I've never been moved like that in the same way. It was when I was worshiping him because of his faithfulness. And what happened was he had told me something. I didn't hear. I didn't listen to him. I knew he was talking to me, but I didn't listen to him. This was years ago. I didn't listen to him, and it cost me greatly. But I just started thinking about that, and I started thanking him because he was faithful. He tried to save me the trouble that I got myself into. It wasn't his fault. It was mine. I, he tried to save me and spare me, and it was his faithfulness that told me ahead of time. Now, why I didn't do it is another issue, and that's not our subject. But I started worshiping him because of his faithfulness. And, and even though I was suffering the consequence of not having paid attention, not having acted on it, and I thought I had a good reason. I thought, well, Lord, I know it's you, and I know you're telling me, but I just can't because of blah, blah, blah. Something came down from heaven over me when I was worshiping him over his faithfulness, like nothing else I'd ever experienced, then or now. The thing that you should be convinced and persuaded of, fully persuaded. Here's how you get fully persuaded. Abraham was fully persuaded. Here's how you get fully persuaded. When you know his faithfulness, not when you decide his promises are true. It's the faithful God who promised. I'm not doing a good job on this, but folks, I really hope that you take a hold of this and explore it for yourself because there is some rich treasure there. Verse 12, Where, Therefore, because she did, sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Look at the results. Did Sarah think she was making history? No, she just came to the realization that God is faithful to promise. She probably looked at the things that he had already done for them in the 25 years they've been following him. And something clicked. She judged him to be faithful. Verse 13, these all, well, let me, literally in the, the Greek, it says this. In faith, these all died. In faith, these all died. Folks, you can't die in faith unless you live in faith. In faith, these all died. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Their natural lives ended before they saw the extent, the fullness of what they saw on the inside, of what God had revealed to them in a variety of ways. Most of these guys were different ways that God had revealed it to them. But they saw something. Now, their natural life ended before they saw the, the fullness of the result. 
Abel's a good example. He saw that he had a need for salvation. He didn't see Jesus come in his lifetime, but he saw him afar off. Abraham saw the promise, the inheritance, the promised land, and the promise of his children. He didn't see them in his natural life, but he saw it inside. These all died in faith, or in faith these all died, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Notice it says three things, and they were persuaded of them. Number one, persuaded means to rely on by an inward certainty. They were convinced of what they saw. And embraced them. The word embrace means to hold near. They held on to what they saw inside more than what they saw outside. They held on more to what they saw from within, from what God's promise or God's word says, more than they held on to the circumstances around them. And as a result, number three, they confessed. The word confess means to acknowledge. Literally, it means to covenant with. They acknowledged. Here was their relationship with God. Here's what they came to, re- to realize that their rela- of their relationship with God, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The word strangers is, the, is a word foreigner. The word pilgrims is a word resident alien. In other words, they realized that they were not of this world. Now notice verse 14. I love verse 14. Notice what it says. We'll, we'll quit with verse 16, so we're, only, we're almost there. Verse 14, it says, For they that say such things. I love this. Here's what people that are persuaded, embrace, and confess. Here's why they say those things. They that say that such things declare plainly that they seek a country. You're not going to talk like that unless you're looking for a place. And truly, verse 15, if they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. What it means is simply this. What they were seeking was more important to them and they were more mindful of than the place, the natural circumstances, the natural environment from which they came out. Because if they had been more mindful of their natural environment or where they came from, they would have turned back. Greatest example of that is Israel in the wilderness. How many times did they say, oh, if we could only go back to Egypt? Why? Because they were mindful of where they came from instead of seeing something inside relative to the promised land. Now Moses told them, God showed them. He proved to them miracle after miracle after miracle. He identified, here's where you're going. But they wouldn't accept it. Most of the older generation wanted to go back to Israel. I mean, go back to uh, Egypt. Oh, if we could only go back there. Their leeks and their garlics were so great. Yeah, we were slaves, but, you know, everything's got difficulties. Now, when they were slaves, they were whining, complaining, praying, oh, God, get us out of here. But they were more mindful of the circumstances. They were more mindful of natural things than they were the spiritual things that God was showing them. He said if these people had been that way, they would have done the same thing. But they weren't. They were different. They were seeking something better. Well, what kind of country were they looking for? Verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You know why God keeps books of works in heaven? as a reminder of the people that he's proud of. What's your book going to look like? Wherefore, he is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. What are they doing? They're seeking after him. I'm going to leave you with this last verse of Scripture. It's in uh, Psalm 27. 
It's a Psalm of David. But when it talks about seeking after God, when it talks about the things that are important, and I'll remind you also, Paul said it this way. He said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, if you be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above. What's he saying? He's saying, keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes on the country, the heavenly country to come. David said it this way, Psalm 27, verse 4. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. Here's what David made first in his life. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. So if that's what you want to be known as, it might be a good pattern to follow. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What's he saying? I think he's saying what Enoch did. I want to walk with God like Enoch. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. Folks that's a life of faith. That's how you make history. We look at things going on around us. We look at the president. We look at at, uh, elected leaders. We look at people that are doing things. We think oh look at the history that's taking place. It's all about Washington. It's all about the leaders. It's all about. No. It's all about living by the word. Because there's going to come a day where Washington will be no more. And all the world leaders, small and great, will stand before the Lord and he's going to open their books. How many of those books are going to have history-making events because they live by faith? That's when it's going to count. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk by faith. Truly, the just shall live by faith. Father, let it not be enough for us that we're just saved. Let every day, every action, let everything that we do, everything that we say and do, Father, let it be done in the name of Jesus. Let it be done according to your word. Father, let us be those of whom you are not ashamed to be called their God. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.